Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. And um, if you're brand new with us, we've been working our way through the chapter you just heard read a moment ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we are slow walking through it in order to glean uh, what this letter has to say about why the resurrection matters, why the resurrection of Jesus matters, not just on Easter Sunday, uh, not just when we feel like we really, really need that kind of encouragement, but every day. Why does the resurrection matter every single day of our lives? And so most of our time, the last few weeks, have been spent thinking about the implications of the resurrection, the answer to the question why the resurrection matters, but you may have noticed a little clever play on words there. Resurrection matters also pertains to matters related to the resurrection. So there are some how and what questions involved as well. And that's what Paul talk, uh, talks about in this portion of the letter. You notice the question that he's taking up is a question that either he's been asked by the, the Christians in Corinth, the people he's writing to, or it's a, it's a question he anticipates being asked. So maybe Paul had a little Q&A time uh, with, the, with the Corinthians at some point by letter or otherwise, and he's like, I know this question's gonna come up, so I'm just gonna get out ahead of it. And what's the question, verse 35, how are the dead raised? A how question, like logistical question, how is this gonna work? Um, or more specifically, what kind of body, with what kind of body do they come? Now we're gonna talk in a second about What's behind this question? There are some philosophical assumptions behind this question that we'll get to. But let's just think about this question for a second because it's probably not the question you came in here asking this morning, right? What kind of body is Jesus gonna give me at the resurrection? Probably not at the top of the list. Um, And yet it is a question I think from time to time we ask, no matter where we're coming from spiritually, I think we have like this inbuilt curiosity about the future, and maybe even, just to be a little more selfish about it, like our future, our future selves. What's that going to be all about? Uh, For those of us here, and I would think that's most of us here, um, sort of are working with the assumption that we're going to live forever. Well, what is that going to be like? How is that going to come about? What's that existence going to be like? Now, we know this is a live question because our culture takes up this question in all kinds of different ways. Hollywood gives us zombie apocalypse movies of corpses coming back to life. Um, You know, television gives us The Walking Dead and other examples of, like, the way this goes badly in one sense. But that's an answer to some questions that that are behind this question. Uh, We have shows like The Good Place, which a little more comical view of things than zombie apocalypse movies, but really taking up similar questions about what happens after we die, where do we go, and do we know that we're in the right place, or the good place, or the bad place? Uh, Or animated movies like Soul and many, many others that are really taking up deep, philosophical, in some cases, theological questions and trying to give us a narrative that makes sense of this question. What's gonna happen? When everything goes down, where do we end up? What kind of bodies will we have? Now, all of those examples are good. The one that I come back to a lot is a Far Side cartoon. I know, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but they hold up pretty well, okay? And this one Far Side cartoon that I think about a lot is this one of a man uh, clearly in heaven or some celestial place, 
and he's sitting on a cloud, and he actually looks a little bored and a little despondent, sitting on the cloud with his robe and his halo, uh, and his halo and his wings on, and he's thinking to himself, I wish I brought a magazine. You see, that really gets at what a lot of us think about when we think about everlasting life. It's like, obviously, better than the alternative, but what are we going to do? Like, what's there to do? And it's not just Christians, and it's not just Gary Larson who asked this question. Uh, Atheists asked this question as, as well as a way of sort of like poking holes in this Christian idea of everlasting life. And so there's one atheist... Um, who in his book on immortality, his study of the idea of immortality and his critique of the Christian presentation of the idea says this, if there is no disease in heaven uh, and no sickness and no aging and no death, if there are no obstacles to overcome and nothing to work for, good gracious, what is there to do? Forever is a long time to be blissfully bored. Now, Many of us wouldn't be so bold as to make that kind of statement, but secretly we're wondering, yeah, what kind of bodies do we get? Same question the Corinthians are asking. And if you're asking any sort of question within that constellation of questions, you have come to the right place because you're in the mood to ask questions and Paul is in the mood to answer them which he does in this passage. So let me pray, and then we'll just jump right in. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity to hear from you, no matter where we're coming from, whether the Bible is familiar to us, maybe the Bible is over-familiar to us, maybe it is foreign to us. Lord, each and every one of us need you, by your spirit, to open our eyes and our hearts, that these wouldn't just be words, but they would be Words we live by, words that give us wisdom, the very words of God, which they are, and we expect them uh, even now to change us. Do that, Lord, for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this question that the Corinthians are asking, honestly, is, uh, gets at the weirdness of some of the things we've been talking about. I don't know if we've called it that, but the strange and odd presentation that Paul is making here that one day... Jesus will return, the same Jesus who walked the earth, we just sang about a moment ago, will return, make all things new, and as part of that redemption reclamation project, our bodies, which had been in the grave, will be raised in power. It's an odd thought. If we just take a a quick second to step back and ask with the Corinthians, yeah, how is that going to happen? What is that going to be like? And again, these aren't completely off-the-wall questions because if you've spent any time in philosophy class or in Sunday school or in church, you've probably asked some version of this speculative question, right? So um, I've had people ask me, as if I should know because I'm a pastor, how old are we going to be in heaven? I don't know. How old do you want to be in heaven? I I have no idea what the answer to that question is. Or my Sunday school teacher told me I could fly in heaven because I want to fly and God's going to give me everything I want. Well, simple logic. I don't know that I can answer that question either. Maybe I have some theories on that. Or some of you are like, finally in heaven, I will no longer be tone deaf. I will be able to sing like an angel. And you know what? We're all rooting for you on that one as well. (laughs) But, you know, these aren't off-the-wall questions. These are questions that we want the answer to. And yet, 
here Paul gives us an immediate answer which would make us think, all right, we're not allowed to ask those questions anymore because his immediate answer in verse 36 is what? You foolish person. Now, there's a few other reasons he's saying that, but let's at least use this as a guide to say the kinds of conversations we should be having about the resurrection shouldn't just be speculative. Like, I wonder what it would be like because there are just some things we can't know and we'll never know, and Paul doesn't know. But there are other things we can know and we need to know in order to move through this life with encouragement and hope and even joy. And Paul gives us some of those answers. In fact, he gives us what is essentially a pattern. Uh, The pattern of the resurrection goes something like this. When we look at the risen body of Jesus, what we learn about our own future is that we too will dwell forever in the same bodies, but better. Same but better is the principle that is in this passage. And Paul gets at this same but better principle, this pattern, in two different ways, by looking in creation and by looking at Christ. By looking in creation and by looking at Christ. And the takeaway is what Jesus promises us is the same body, but better. All right, the first place we learn these lessons is in creation. That's really the first full paragraph Paul, the apostle, becomes farmer Paul and zoologist Paul and astronomer Paul, and he's looking at all these different facets of creation, and he's trying to teach us from what we see around us, from what God has made, that what is promised to us in the resurrection is a body that is the same but is better. Years and years and years later, Martin Luther, the reformer and theologian, would put it this way, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection not just in books, but in every leaf at springtime. The pattern is all around us, Paul says. You just have to have eyes to see it. So the first stop on this tour of creation is the garden. Verse 36, he begins to answer this question that they have about our bodies Uh, and that we have too, when he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul, what are you talking about? All right, here's an example. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So uh, you go out to the store and you come back and you've got a packet of tomato seeds. Right? And it says tomato seeds on the outside and you rip up the, you, you rip off the top and you put the tomato seeds on the counter and you look at them and you're like, hey, look, tomato seeds. No, that's not what you do because they look like carrot seeds or any other seed that you've ever seen in your entire life. They don't look like little tomatoes. They look like seeds. And if you were to water those seeds on the counter, you would just have a big mess. What do you have to do? You have to take those seeds, plant them in the ground, cause them to die, bury them as it were. That's what Paul's language is. And you water them and you take care of them. And a few months later, you'll take a tomato off the tomato plant and you'll take it back to the counter and you get the the cutting board out and you'll slice up some nice juicy tomatoes for your burger on the 4th of July. Or mix it into your famous family salsa recipe. Right? Is a tomato seed the same thing as a tomato? Eh, kind of. Same DNA structure, but better, right? You don't hand somebody a tomato seed and say, taste this tomato seed. But you do hand them your famous salsa and go, I made that. Tomatoes grown right here on our property. Why? Because it's the same, but it's better. Lesson number one, from the garden. Lesson number two, from the wild, from 
the wilderness from the animals and creatures that we find when we go outside, when we get off our screens and we go outside in the world, away from the city, and we see little creatures, or even just in your backyard, little creatures like birds or fish, if you have fish in your backyard. Don't know if that happens in your place, but maybe it happens. And what do we learn? Well, Paul tells us, verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. He could go on. He could say another for giraffes, another for turkeys, another for platypi. Is that right? Platypi? Um, Right? What's Paul doing? He's saying, look, you look around, God made everything, and he gave different bodies to different creatures for different reasons. And so it stands to reason that if God needs to create a different body for you that's the same but different, he's got a track record that holds up pretty well. He can handle it. Next lesson, that's the lesson from the the wild. Next lesson is from the sky. He says, look up. And what do you see when you look up? Verse 41, you see the sun. You see the moon, you see the stars, and each have its own glory, and even between them, they have variations of glory. So let's just think about our sun, for instance. Our sun, I think we would all agree, is glorious in many ways. It's bright, it gives us light during the day, it gives us warmth, uh, it, um, uh, it's essential to our life, it's glorious in that way, but do you know that astronomers have discovered another star in our solar system called a hypergiant, which is 1,700 times bigger than our sun. 1,700 times. That's five billion of our suns could fit into that sun. All right? So, yes, our sun is glorious, but there are other things God has made of the same kind that are more glorious. What's Paul's point? When it comes to an upgrade from good to great, from glorious to even more glorious, God can handle that too. And in case you're feeling like some brain strain from all of these analogies, maybe that's just not the way you work, engineers, I've got you, because there's a handy quick reference chart that Paul gives us here, all right? Paul loves you and he has a chart for your life, okay? And here it is. He breaks it down for us. Like, I don't know what he's talking about, plants and fish and birds, whatever. Give me the chart. Here's the chart, verse 42. What is sown perishable. So now we're back to the, to the garden. So you've got to bear with him there for a second. But you get the idea by now, right? What goes into the ground perishable and decomposing is raised imperishable. You looking at it? Verse 43, what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. What? Okay, we'll come back to that in just a second, but you get, you get the chart. You see the two sides of it, right? What he's saying is what goes in is the same as what comes out, but it's better. It's an upgrade. We'll just think about that word upgrade for a second, all right? So when you get an upgrade to your software, hypothetically, this is the way it's supposed to work, okay? Same operating system, but better. All right, when your kids tell you, dad, mom, the flip phone, it's got to go. It's time for an upgrade, and you've been doing upgrade for 15 years, and you go, I like my flip phone. You're like, there's something much better. Trust me, it's the same, but better. I remember the day, I, the first, I know, again, dating myself, far side, and then this. I remember the day I saw iPhone for the first time. 
It was the same, but it was better. I didn't have to push, you know, the one button three times to get the letter C when I was texting. It was pretty awesome. What Paul is saying here is the resurrection promises you same body, but better. And better in the ways that he describes here. Now, here's the problem for the Corinthians, all right? So I I said I was going to mention this without getting into all of the philosophical background. The basic issue was the Corinthians are like you. They don't want the phone upgrade. In fact, they want a completely different upgrade than what Paul is talking about. So for them, the idea that going from this body to a better body, that's not an upgrade. The upgrade they wanted was nobody because their philosophical assumption was dualistic when it came to the body and the spirit. Spirit good, body bad. This is why the first 14 chapters are spent talking about the ways in which they've disassociated their bodies from their relationship with God. They're doing whatever they want with their bodies because they don't think their bodies matter. All that happens is up here for them. And so for them, everlasting life that would be blissful and enjoyable would be an escape from the body. And here Paul is saying, actually the pinnacle of God's redemptive story in your life is you getting the same body back, but better. And they're like, it does not compute for me. That's why he spends so much time talking about it. Because they have a messed up idea of what our bodies are for. Now, we can sneer at them for that because we're so sophisticated, but then again, we have a really messed up body idea. We have a really messed up idea of what our bodies are for. And part of the reason for this is because we live in a culture that is schizophrenic when it comes to whether our bodies matter or they don't matter. It's like on one hand, we are bombarded with these messages that tell us that the only thing that matters is our bodies. Okay? And this is why we basically worship beautiful people in our culture. It's why we celebrate so much and spend so much time watching other people perform great athletic feats, and we stand up and we applaud. Uh, It's why we're bombarded with messages that say what really matters is how you look, how you dress, uh, what shape you are, uh, what skin tone you have, what hairstyle you have. Um, how you present yourself to other people. Bottom line, what other people think about your body. That's the most important thing our culture tells us. Uh, Which is why it's it's very possible even this week, those of us who are Christians who think that's actually nonsense, probably most likely spent more time caring for our bodies this week than caring for our souls. It's possible. Maybe not all of us, but it's a temptation. And then, like right next to this idolatry of the body, we have this other view that basically says, at the same time, you don't really need your body to do anything important. Because as we discover the last couple years, we can work at home now. Uh, We can, uh, because we can work online, uh, we can shop online, we can um, even get groceries online, something of a revelation to some of us. Did you know you can do that? You can. Um, You can order food online, you can even attempt to date online. And it turns out, you can go to church online. I know, I I probably shouldn't be saying that right now. But you could be at home, in your PJs. Now, I'm being a little bit snarky about that, and so let me say right away, I'm actually really, really glad that we live in a time when we can stream our services, some people are watching right now, 
because they can't be here. Maybe they're out of town. A number of our members really physically can't be here. Some of our members are vulnerable in terms of their um, immune system, and so it's not a good idea for them to be here. And there's all kinds of good reasons to make use of technology. As much as we all hate Zoom, we have to admit, it allows us to connect with people we've never been able to connect with before. So we can hate on it, or we can be grateful for its good and proper use, while at the same time recognizing it's not a substitute for the real thing. It's just not a substitute. Uh, I ran across an article uh, a few months ago in which uh, this, this uh, writer was, was speaking to digital natives like ourselves, and she said this, that, um, that church is a constant reminder for us of what she called the stubborn analog wonder of embodied life. The stubborn analog wonder of embodied life. And what Paul is giving us back here, I think he's helping us recover something, which, you know, no time like the present to recover this, a healthy view of our bodies. Protestants, Christians, but especially Protestants, we're not very good at talking about bodies in ways that cohere to what the Bible says. But here, Paul is at least giving us a way back in. This is a longer conversation. But the way back in tells us this. Your body is important. It's important to God. That the human body received a blue ribbon at creation. God said, very good. And that importance, that significance of the human body was affirmed when God himself took a body in the form of Jesus, not through gritted teeth, but joyfully entered into our human experience as one of us, except without sin. And then the resurrection is the great affirmation of the goodness of the human body, so much so that Jesus isn't just interested in saving your soul. He's interested in saving your body. That's the doctrine of the resurrection, that even now the incarnation continues. Jesus, one of us, on the throne of heaven. So, maybe we need to step back and say, you know, our bodies are important. Let's not fall into the same dualism that says all that matters is what happens here. No, God cares about our bodies. Our spirits and our bodies are part of the same whole. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to stop hating on our bodies all the time. We need to stop listening to what everyone else says about our bodies and remember that God pronounces a benediction over all of us. And at the same time, we need to resist the idolatry that says our bodies are all that matter. Because that's not true. Because we live out this embodied life for the short time we have on this earth before a holy God who asks, demands things of us, I should say. And well, one day we'll stand before him and give an account for our lives. So it's not just a matter of how our bodies look, it's how we live in these bodies that ultimately is most important. And I think Paul brings us back to a healthy balance that we could talk about more later. But let's move um, to what Paul also says about the resurrection pattern in Christ. I told you that this is a little confusing in verse 44 when he talks about a natural and a spiritual body. What in the world is a spiritual body? It's like a square basketball. What is a spiritual body? Well, this is one of those places when you run across a tricky thing in the Bible. Um, first thing you do is you think context. Okay, what it, what's the immediate context? That's not altogether helpful here, but it is helpful in saying this, that Paul's not going back on everything he's said already as if to say, you know, the spirit's important and the body isn't, so we know that. But what does he mean by natural and spiritual? We can go a little further back in the context to chapter 2. 
And there we find Paul making this distinction between natural and spiritual. And there he's talking about natural and spiritual people. You can go read it later. And the difference is not one is a body and one is a spirit. What he means is there are some people who are consumed by and controlled by sin. And therefore, when you start talking about God and the Bible and Jesus and redemption, it doesn't make any sense to them. He says that's a natural person. And there are other people who are spiritual. They're not better, you know, not like they have their act together, but they are fundamentally controlled uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so when you talk to them about the God and the Bible and uh, redemption and Jesus, it makes sense to them. Natural people and spiritual people. In the same way, there are natural bodies that have been corrupted by and in some ways controlled by sin, and there are spiritual bodies which are healed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. One belongs to the realm of nature. One belongs to the realm of heaven. That's the distinction he's making here. And what he's saying fundamentally is that all of us are born into this world and exit this world inhabiting a natural body. Why? Well, as he says here, we are of Adam. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, We are of the man of dust. He's our father. And so we inherit from him bodies which are natural, which means bodies which uh, are damaged because of our sin, bodies which have been damaged by other people's sin, bodies that live in this world that has been vandalized by human rebellion, and so bodies that are susceptible to disease, to dementia, to depression, bodies that wear out and bodies that eventually die. Our bodies belong to the realm of this world, the realm of nature. That's true of all of us. And yet the hope that's put before us is what goes into the ground natural is raised spiritual. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus returns, will raise those who were buried with a natural body to have a spiritual body, one that is healed, restored, renewed by the very power of God. Now, this idea of a natural body um, is actually familiar to us. Um, we've been passing an article around the pastors from, uh, among the pastors from the uh, Washington Post from a couple months ago, or a couple weeks ago, actually, on the science of immortality. I don't know if you saw this. But there's a growing trend within science to um, discover the, uh, the key to life through science and extend life and even seek immortality through science. And so uh, there, there's like billions of dollars being invested in people trying to reverse the aging process. And that's, that shouldn't be any surprise to us because no one really like loves the idea of living in a natural body, but it is descriptive of our lives, isn't it? And like, we all know that our bodies are breaking down and dying, some of us a little more than others. Some of us hurt ourselves sleeping last night. So like, We know what that's all about. And others of us are dealing with serious, life-threatening illness. And others of us are watching people we love suffering because our bodies are natural. I love what Sam Albury said in his book, Lifted, the very best of human resources and technology could not even come close to achieving for our bodies what will happen when they are raised. Not even close. They will belong to a new order fitted for life and service in a restored and redeemed everlasting realm. That's the promise that Paul is putting before us, that our natural bodies will one day be raised to spiritual bodies. 
Those are the how and why questions that, that Paul is addressing. Um, and yet, I really think what Paul is most interested in is really a who question. Right? So he's told us that you can look at creation, you can look at Christ, and you can come up with some, some categories that help us understand kind of the logistics of our resurrection and what that will be like. But ultimately, what's more interesting to him and more important to us is a who question. And we get this, right? So if someone were to hand you today a ticket, a front row ticket to your favorite band or your favorite musician or your favorite symphony, front row ticket, and says, here, I want you to go, or front row ticket to the big game, uh, or, or, uh, or first class seat to your dream destination, they handed it to you, said, free of charge, knock yourself out. Um, what's the first question you're gonna ask, probably? Well, who's going with me? Now, I hesitate to use this analogy because some of you are so introverted, that would not be the first question. You would take it and you would go. But most of us, most of us at some point, okay, even the most introverted, would want to know that we're with somebody we care about, that we can enjoy this with them. Who am I going with? What Paul really wants us to know when it comes to our future selves, yes, same but better, same but better and with Jesus. You see, he answers that question at the end of this passage when he says, just as we have been born, just as we have born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The Apostle John puts it like this in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This ultimately is what thrills our hearts. It's the prospect of being in the presence of Jesus. So like, I'm not ultimately worried about the boredom issue. Okay, I'm not worried that we're gonna run out of things to do. I'm not worried that we're gonna be pining for magazines so that we just have something to occupy our minds. Why? Because of who we will be with. Because of who will greet us at the gate of heaven, one 19th century pastor thinking of these things, finding joy springing up in his heart, so powerful that these words words almost burst out of his mouth, said this, in heaven, a hand like my hand will open the gate of life for me. A face in the form of my face will be there to greet me, amen. Let me pray. Our Father, uh, we do indeed thank you that the promise of the resurrection is for us today in this pattern that you have given us, that one day you will raise these weary and tired bodies to new life, uh, is, is in, in many ways beyond our imagination. Uh, and yet, Lord, we know that, um, that these promises are guaranteed for us in the very redeemed flesh and blood of our Savior. So we pray, Lord, that even today, um, you would give us joy and hope and encouragement and even peace in the midst of trouble because of what you have shown us today in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.